Hello and welcome to the Mallow Street podcast, where we discuss people's path to pensions, pension careers and much more. I am Sandra Wolf, editor at Mallow Street, and I have the pleasure to welcome the former chief executive of the pensions regulator, Leslie Tickhorn. Leslie, welcome. Thank you, Sandra. People in the pensions industry obviously know you as a former pensions regulator, and we will come to that later. Um, but you probably had other roles before that. What was your route to becoming a pensions regulator and what was driving you? Well, um, I started off training after university as a chartered accountant with Ernst & Young. This is in the 80s and I always specialised in financial services audits. When I qualified, they sent me on secondment to the then Securities and Investments Board, one of the financial services regulators, and I really enjoyed that. I went back to be a senior audit manager for a couple of years, didn't enjoy that so much. So I decided I really liked regulation. I liked the intellectual challenge, the variety, all that kind of thing. Uh, I was involved in policy making at the time. And so I decided to rejoin the regulator, SIB. Uh, and I then stayed with it and its successors, the FSA and the FCA, uh, and finished up as chief operating officer of the FCA. Did a whole range of roles there in the meantime. Uh, and then decided that I was really enjoying being a leader of a complex knowledge-based organisation and that I wanted to try my hand at being a chief executive so I started applying for CEO roles and one of the first that came along was the pensions regulator and of course given my background it was an excellent fit. And when you took over as CEO of the regulator in 2015, how would you describe the situation in the pensions industry and at TPR? Well, I think people always say this, but the pensions industry was in a huge period of change, still is, probably was four years before that as well. But the key thing that had just happened after I, uh, that was happening just as I joined was the introduction of freedom and choice, which was a, a massive uh, change for the industry and also posed some real cha challenges for the regulator, which we can talk about. But the obvious one was that the regulator TPR needed to refocus itself from being a DB oriented regulator into being DC. It was starting to do that because of its responsibilities for automatic enrolment, but it needed really to take that further and work out how it was going to regulate DC pensions effectively. So that was one of the biggest challenges. Uh, as an organisation, I think it was a bit of a, a sleeping lion, if you like, um, uh, in that it had a great many experts, very committed, very professional, principally oriented on DB. And it also wasn't used to going out and uh, interacting with its stakeholders that much. So two of the real priorities that the board and the chairman asked me to focus on were uh, making us a holistic regulator, a comprehensive regulator across the playing field and raising the organisation's profile. And how did your previous experience help you with that? Well, obviously, having been a regulator at the FCA and its predecessors for 20 odd years, um, I had quite a considerable understanding of the kind of theory of regulation, different styles of regulation. I knew a little bit about pensions because I'd been responsible for the supervision of financial advisors uh, uh, and uh, pension intermediary, that type of thing uh, during my time there. So that all came to bear. But actually, the most important skills were the leadership skills. The... Um, being part of a senior team at the FCA, working, observing other chief executives, Hector Sants, Martin Wheatley, who I'd worked with, uh, deciding what my style as a leader was and bringing that to bear on the organisation. Mm -hmm. um, TPR was obviously uh, much in focus with the BHS scandal and the fall of Carillion. 
and it led to much scrutiny from MPs, um, notably Frank Field and his Work and Pensions Committee. And you had to appear before them uh, more than once. Do you feel they were always fair in their questioning, particularly well, given that they, Parliament makes the rules? Mm. Uh, and it is always uh, very puzzling to people when they hear those sessions and they hear MPs asking you about the law and, you know, they expect you to turn around and say, but you made the law, surely you know what it means. But I think we have to understand that, first of all, I would say parliamentary scrutiny of regulators is extremely important and it goes with the territory. Regulators are given a lot of powers. They need to be held to account for how they use those powers or how they're not using them, if that's appropriate as well. BHS and Carillion were big uh, events that impacted a huge number of people in a bad way. Therefore, equally well, it's right that Parliament holds the regulators and others, as they did, to account for what we did or didn't do in relation to those. Do I feel that their style of questioning is always conducive to establishing what happened and learning the lessons? I think anybody who's seen some of the more aggressive sessions will uh, will appreciate they can be extremely difficult. But I think you also have to understand that MPs in that situation have very few tools available to them. Um, as select committee members, the only thing they can really do is call people in front of them and ask for doc documents and papers and witnesses and that kind of thing, uh, and then produce a report, which the government has to read but doesn't have to accept so that you know they want to make something of those sessions and that is perhaps understandable do i think it always brings increased light on the situation perhaps not is it uncomfortable yes <laughs> and what about the role of the press yeah well and it's interesting isn't it because that's where we see politicians and the press working in tandem because what the politicians are doing is seeking to drum up the interest of the press and dare I say it to you, but I, the press is probably more interested in bad news than good news. So it's rare that the regulators' successes get reported in the press. Very often we can't even talk about them mm -hmm. uh, for various reasons. So um, there's been huge debates over the years about um, what performance measures there should be for regulators. And I remember somebody suggesting once that column inches might be a good uh, thing and and I thought no that would be extremely bad news for regulators because given the balance I think in the press is towards the negative the incidental reporting rather than the continuity in the business as usual. Mm. Um, but do you think perhaps there was also a grain of truth in um, you know some of the things they said I know MP said uh, described the regulator as a tentative and apologetic and said this approach is ingrained in the culture how would you describe TPR's culture? Do you see that as well? We certainly uh, accepted that we needed to change the culture of the organisation and well before the British Home Stores BHS situation broke, we were, the chairman and I and the board were very much of the view that we needed to make this a clearer, quicker and tougher regulator. We were already, for example, um, exploring a, a, a wider range of cases, a wider range of enforcement powers that we could use. But equally well, we recognise that being a successful regulator isn't just about enforcement. It's also about how you support um, organisations that are doing the right thing, as well as those that are doing something wrong, uh, and so on and so forth. So you have to get the balance right. So um, we were 
absolutely of the view that we needed to to change the culture to make it clearer, quicker and tougher in what in what it was doing. Um, the politicians, of course, like to take some credit for that <laughs> after those sessions and so on. And that's also understandable. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, I was in a situation where effectively, as the chief executive of the organisation, I was having to defend decisions that had been taken 10, 12 years ago in some cases. Uh, And that's difficult, but again, it goes with the territory. It's no use sitting there and saying, oh, well, you know, um, I wasn't here then, so, you know, by definition it's wrong or by definition it's right. Particularly if you say it's wrong, you may be criticising a number of the staff who, you know, were acting in good faith at the time in accordance with the culture and practices at the time. So you have to be very careful as a leader what you're saying about your organisation in those in those times. So I decided that it was important to be clear about what how we wanted to be as a regulator going forward, rather than spending too much time reflecting on the on the past and what had happened. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the the new motto is clearer, quicker, tougher. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know my successor has continued with that. He was yeah. quoted in it in the press yesterday. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, we've just had a Queen's speech, mm-hmm. um, which includes a pension scheme spill where the regulator is given more yeah. powers mm-hmm. if it gets approved in that form. Um, do you think that will be what is needed? Well, I'm pleased to see the pensions bill. I know the a, uh, the pensions minister will be even more pleased because he's had it on the stocks for a very long time. Mm. Um, uh, I think it's as interesting for what it doesn't contain as what it does. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it, it, the proposal is to give TPR some more powers. Um, personally, I think those are important and welcome, but they will not in itself make TPR a clearer, quicker, tougher regulator, as we were discussing. That is about culture. It's about how you do the day-to-day business of regulation, not just about banging people in jail. Mm -hmm. We all appreciate, I think, that the standard of proof for a criminal prosecution is extremely high, Mm -hmm. in particular the proving of intent. Uh, And I think... Therefore, people need to understand that criminal prosecutions for um, ripping off your pension scheme will not be frequent. Yeah. It will be in a, those will be an occasionally used power. I think all of the things around information gathering, those sort of things in the bill will be much, much more important in terms of how TPR conducts day-to-day regulation. Mm-hmm. And um, you sort of hinted at what was not in the bill. There mm-hmm. was... Um, a lot of press about uh, super funds mm-hmm. not being contained yeah. in the bill. Yeah. What does that mean for the regulator? How well, it's ga- it, it's difficult, but it because what it means is that what TPR I know wants to do in terms of regulating those super funds, it can do, but without the force of law behind it in the short term, and that means that whilst the super funds, as those who are out there trying to market themselves in the market are doing wish to cooperate with the regulator, then that's fine. But should they at any point, not that necessarily them, but somebody new, say at some point, try to act in an inappropriate way, it then becomes quite difficult for the regulator without the force of law to um, to take action. So there's lots that the regulator can do, that TPR can do, to regulate those funds, to set standards, to um, you know, uh, try and indicate whether it thinks the individuals involved with them are fit and proper, all that kind of thing that you would typically do as they are doing, for example, when authorising master trusts now under that that set of powers. But they won't have that that hard requirement 
uh, and the powers to back it up if somebody chooses not to cooperate. And what were the reasons for not including it? Well, that's a very good question, and you and I could speculate as to what that is. Um, I suspect, I don't know, I suspect it's around the um, the differential regimes between uh, consolidated super funds for DB schemes and insurance companies, and in particular the capital requirements that might be applied in those circumstances. Because the fact is that if you allow a differential regime, then obviously the insurance companies may lose out, who are regulated by the PRA to European standards, may lose out to uh, on that type of business to the DB consolidators. Equally well, if you don't do that, then the DB consolidation is not going to fly as a commercial model. Mm. So it's a, it's a straight political question as to what you want. And do you think that that fear is exaggerated? I mean, some people have suggested that if schemes or employers can afford buyout, they should be forced to do that rather than. Well, uh, I, I think the key point that they're pushing, that they're rightly pushing for, is that schemes are clear about what they're trying to achieve and what their destination is on their journey. Um, and uh, I think that you can provide security for savers through a variety of means of which an insurance company is one. Uh, and there is a certain level of protection provided by complying with those European standards. Um, do I think that you can provide a better standard than the current employer, which is after all the credit risk we're me measuring against here mm -hmm. with a consolidator? Then yes, I think you probably can in some cases with a well-run consolidator. Does it mean it has to be an insurer? you're providing an, another route, possibly a cheaper route for people. Some will still want to move to buyout because they'll want to provide their members with that sort of security. Mm -hmm. Some can't afford buyout. And well, there's a question about the capacity in the buyout market as well. So why not provide the alternative mechanism? Mm -hmm. um, generally, looking back at your tenure, mm. would you do anything differently? Oh, I think I think there are always things you can do differently. When you're managing an organisation of, as by the time I left, nearly 700 people um, and uh, facing the range of challenges that we faced, uh, I think there's always things you can do differently. Uh, there was a particularly um, challenging people-related uh, change that we introduced in a, a very short period before I left. I would like to have done that earlier, to have had longer to work at it, longer to communicate it, that type of thing. But equally well, 12 months before I left, we were doing a raft of other things. So, you know, there's a, how much change can the organisation take? Mm. Um, so I don't regret introducing that change, but I do regret I didn't have long enough to push it through. Mm -hmm. And hand on heart, do you think it makes sense to have two different regulators look after pension schemes? Yes, yes and yes is the answer. Um, and for several reasons. Um, first of all, there's the fundamental difference in the law in which these schemes are set up, trust-based law versus contract-based. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that's that. And that's reflected in the history. That's the history of why we have two regulators. But the other reason we have two regulators is that pensions are the responsibility of the DWP and other financial services the responsibility of the Treasury. So will we ever move to having a single regulator for pensions, which you could expect over time, perhaps with the shift to DC. That I can understand. Historically, you can absolutely understand we are, why we are where we are. I think it's over time you could see an increasing case for one regulator, but it, politically, I don't think it'll happen until 
you see either the DWP or the Treasury prepared to give up some responsibility um, for that particular aspect. And to be frank, I think the cows might come home before that happens. What did you like best about being a regulator? Oh, um, well, you can do a whole range of roles in a good, in a big regulator. Um, so policy making, people management, project management, um, public affairs, you know, communi- learning about communication, all that kind of thing. So certainly the variety was key. No two days of my working life have ever been the same in the regulators. You know, you just do not know what could hit your desk. Secondly, the intellectual challenge. It is complex work that requires you to apply your brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thirdly, always working with great people, but everybody says that about every job, but you know, it's important. Uh, And you're working in organizations where the people there tend to have a sense of vocation. They're doing it because they want to do something worthwhile, which makes them generally a very well motivated bunch of people to work with, which is exciting in itself. And have you ever regretted, or did you ever regret taking on the role? No, absolutely. <laughs> the, the TPR role, absolutely not, no. I never regretted it in the slightest. So people say, so why did you stop at the end of four years? You know, And the answer is that I was very tired. It's, it's an exhausting and demanding role. I was 57, and I felt that I wanted to do some other things uh, with my life. It's also, being a CEO is a seven days a week, 24-hour-a-day job. And I wanted to regain a little bit of control over my life outside work <laughs> and a chance to visit it occasionally. Um, so I felt that the four-year contract is there for a reason um, for both sides. And it's a really useful point at which to rethink, you know, what next in my career. Mm-hmm. And looking at pensions from outside or from where you stand mm-hmm. now, what would be your message to the government? Uh push the pensions bill through would be the first one because I think what's in there is needed whether it's in terms of powers for TPR but also the dashboard for example and the introduction of the uh, of the CDC style so absolutely for that but I think my overall message would be stop tinkering and simplify and that goes for tax too because I think they're in you know interconnected very strongly there is a massive tendency in government just to overcomplicate things when it comes to tax or when it comes to pensions. So my real challenge, and nobody is, there's no votes, unfortunately, in simplifying tax. There could be a few in simplifying pensions. So is that perhaps the way into it? You know, so my message would be stop tinkering and simplify. And um, moving on to trustees, there's a lot of debate about the future of trusteeship and there was consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you stand uh, in the whole accreditation and standards debate? So um, I am very much of the view that if self-regulation can be made to work, that is a very good thing. So I really support the bodies that are going out there to set themselves up as a professional body and to try to set the standards for the uh, for trustees, that type of thing. Very strongly supportive of that. Um, equally well, I think TPR are right to consult on things like, you know, the role of the professional trustee, that type of thing, because being a trustee is a massively onerous job and getting increasingly onerous and increasingly complicated. Um, And that's not just in pensions, that's true whether it's charity, trusteeship or anything else. So uh, I think that the more that can be done 
to support trustees through professional organisations and so on. And that, if that can be made to work, fantastic. The problem is, and TPR had this issue, there are a number of trustees out there who just will not engage. And, you know, the percentage of, uh, of trustees who wouldn't open an email from TPR was really quite mm -hmm. horrifying. Um, so what do you do if that, trying to get at each of these trustee boards through someone who is um, engaging, who is cooperating, who is trying to drive up the standards, what if that doesn't work? Then you may have to move to accreditation uh, exam standards, yeah. that type of thing, qualifications. Mm -hmm. So my view is work the regulator, TPR, should work with the professional organisations to try and drive up the standards, but keep a very close eye on that. And if it doesn't work, be prepared to move to the more, you know, uh, more forceful solutions. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I understand, TPR doesn't recruit trustees into regulatory roles. I was a bit surprised to see this. I'm not <laughs> sure that's true. I don't recognise that policy from when I was there, certainly. Do you have former trustees in TPR? Uh, I think we probably have a couple of people who are trustees now, if you, you know, but what they would have to do is declare a conflict of interest, an interest, you know, declare an interest and shout if they felt that was going to be a conflict in any way. Now, obviously, if they're a trustee of a pension scheme, they're not going to be given a direct supervisory responsibility for that at any point, And they would have to recuse themselves from any discussions relating to the scheme with which, they, with which they're involved. But that is manageable. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, you can imagine at FCA, not surprisingly, everybody has a bank account or a yeah. certain savings or, or that type of thing. So I'm a little surprised to hear that. I, I wasn't aware of it as a, as a conscious policy. And um, could you see yourself as a trustee? Oh, yes. And I mean, I am a trustee of a number of things in, in a charity perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, it is something I have considered for my portfolio. I'm not doing it at the moment, but I have been approached about a number uh, that I've, you know, seriously considered. So, mm -hmm. And um, looking at your regulatory experience overall, do you feel that the trust-based model is a good model? Um, I do, uh, as I said, um, but I think it has to evolve. I don't think it can stand still. But that, as I said, is true of charity, trusteeship or any other form. Um, it relies on this rather ancient form of law mm -hmm. <laughs> that's been around for a few hundred years. Um, but that doesn't mean that the responsibilities won't change over time. It doesn't mean that the um, need for trustees to educate themselves differently, to maintain their, uh, their level of education and so on, uh, isn't going to be different over time. I think it does. But I think, do I think it's robust in itself? Yes, I think it can be. And I think it can be enormously beneficial in that the commonality of interest between the trustees of pension schemes in particular with employee-based, uh, employee-nominated trustees and so on, to have that direct interest, the representatives of the people who are saving in that scheme, I think is hugely beneficial. Mm -hmm. And how difficult is it to regulate the pension sector as opposed to... Oh, that's an interesting sectors. question. Um, well, one thing I would say is TPR is a very focused regulator compared to FCA, whose responsibilities are vast. So I think it can concentrate on its particular and build up an area of expertise comparatively easily. I mean, uh, you know, I do reflect on the challenge that Andrew Bailey, the breadth of his responsibilities at FCA is absolutely enormous, very different role to the CEO of TPR, where you're much more 
more focused on those workplace schemes. Um, so I think pensions is challenging in the sense that particularly the funding of DB schemes can be quite complex in, to understand and so on, but it, it's not rocket science, you can get. Mm. <laughs> DC schemes, the issues are much more like um, uh, a wider range of conduct issues there. Um, and then the interesting challenge for the organisation for TPR was always the introduction of the responsibility for automatic enrolment, mm -hmm. because that took it in a to a completely different space, which which is not intellectually complicated, but required it to run a massive program to enrol everybody uh, to get employees to enrol all those employers to enrol their employees in automatic enrolment. Completely different kettle of fish for the organisation, and taught it a whole new range of skills. Uh, and expertise and it did it very very well it's not an, an issue you have ever seen reported about in the press because it went really really well mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what advice would you give to your successor oh I wouldn't presume to give Charles much advice he knows exactly what he's doing um, but the main uh, I, I was asked this when I was leaving and the main thing I would say is um, go out there and engage with the industry you can't sit in an ivory tower in Brighton. You need to be out there talking to stakeholders, taking the temperature, explaining what you're doing. Regulators have to be accountable, not just to Parliament, but to all their stakeholders. And that means you have to go out there and engage with people, listen to them and explain what you're doing and why. And um, presumably you're a member of some pension schemes yourself. I am, yes, interestingly enough. Yes. Are, you, are you happy with the governance standards? Well, yes, of course, the main one that I'm a member of is the FCA. So, um, uh, so uh, yes, I'm very happy with the standards of governance. And um, what do you do when you don't think about pensions? Oh, good question. Well, so since I left TPR, I've taken on a number of things in uh, a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So I am a non-executive director of a couple of organisations, both financial services. Uh, but most importantly, perhaps that I'm enjoying the most is I'm a trustee of Step Change, the debt advice charity, which is kind of bringing my um, history, my working life to bear on a completely different organisation on a pro bono basis. I'm cooking a lot more, I'm singing a lot more, uh, I'm watching a lot of sport, I've had a ball this summer watching cricket and now I'm watching rugby. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and uh, just generally, um, I think the best thing is not waking up to an alarm every morning, to be able to wake up naturally. That, that must be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> And do you have any, any specific plans for the future? Well, really to continue with the portfolio career. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm enjoying that, the variety and so on. And, and when I stood down from TPR, my goals were twofold. One was to um, not work full time again. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other was to have something in my portfolio which isn't financial services. Now, that latter one I'm still working on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, I'm hopeful on that. Okay. And uh, do you think you'll ever fully retire? Oh, I think, well, I, I've given up using the word retirement, actually. I, I, I refer to later life now, and I, you know, and I did that all the time I was CEO of TPR because I felt, uh, Ros Altman used to say, you know, retirement isn't a point in time, it's a journey. 
Uh, and I, I think of it, you know, it's the later life journey now and we will all go on and do, because um, women in my family tend to live into their 90s. My mother is still with us, she's 84. We celebrated the 20th anniversary of her ordination as a priest in the Church of England last week. That was her third career mm-hmm. after being a chemist and being a mother, you know. So um, I don't think that you want to retire now. You don't want to retire your brain. You want to keep active, keep stimulated, keep interested. Uh, so I don't envisage retiring. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Leslie, thank you much. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to hear more from people that are shaping the pensions landscape, please tune in again for our next episode.